This is Epicenter, episode 359 with guests Ishmael Kofi and Mustafa Albasam. Hi, I'm Sebastian Cuchillo, and you're listening to Epicenter, the podcast where we interview crypto founders, builders, and thought leaders. On this show, we dive deep to learn how things work at a technical level, and we fly high to understand visionary concepts and long-term trends. If you like the podcast, the best way to support us is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Now, did you know that leaving an Apple Podcast review gives you a serotonin boost that permeates throughout the rest of your day? Well, if that sounds good to you, if you want that jolt of happiness, go to epicenter.rocks Apple on your Mac, your iPhone, or your iPad, and leave us a five-star Apple review. Today, our guests are Ishmael Kofi and Mustafa Al-Bassam, and together they are the co-founders of Lazy Ledger. Now, this is a project that I didn't know very much about before I heard this interview. And actually, if you go to their website, there's very little there, and it still feels fairly early. But it's really interesting because it does something that we haven't really seen before, at least not implemented in this way. So Lazy Ledger is sort of a minimal viable blockchain. It does timestamping and block ordering. And so the way to think about this, the analogy is to think about Bitcoin in the early days, before Ethereum, when folks were building things like colored coin and counterparty, essentially layer two systems on top of Bitcoin that were leveraging Bitcoin's consensus layer. And what they were doing is they were using the upturn field in Bitcoin to store uh, block hashes for their layer two blockchain. Lazy Ledger kind of does this, only it's purpose-built and scalable for that exact use case. So obviously, the implementation details are a lot more complex, and Sonny and Brian go deep into the technical details during the interview. But the vision is to create a modular, pluggable layer one that does nothing but consensus and data availability. There's no smart contracts or anything like that. And it's great for people who want to just create their own blockchains Without consensus, they just dump their blocks on Lazy Ledger, and it does the rest. So you could say, for example, build a Cosmos SDK chain or an EVM chain. You post your blocks on Lazy Ledger, and it takes care of the rest. So the reason why I think this is interesting beyond the technical implementation is that to me it shows a certain level of maturity of a technology ecosystem when different layers of the stack are starting to unbundle and uncouple from each other. So we saw this in Web2, where we now have a very modular stack all the way down from the infrastructure layer and going all the way up to the application layer when develop, where developers can pick and choose the different components that they use to build their applications that are best suited for their apps. And we're now starting to see this in the blockchain technology stack, and Lazy Ledger is just one component. It's the consensus component in that broader technology stack. The other reason why I think this is interesting is its simplicity. Lazy Ledger does one thing. It does consensus-based, time-stamped ordering of data. And beyond crypto finance, there's a whole universe of applications that exist that could leverage this very thing. So if you look at the entire enterprise blockchain application space, I would say most of those applications are trying to establish a single source of truth between participants that don't trust each other. And as we've seen, a blockchain isn't always the best technology for these applications. And so I think having something like Lazy Ledger as a publicly available single source of truth has tremendous potential for all kinds of applications outside of crypto finance. 
If you're thinking of building a crypto finance application, you should definitely check out Algorand because their unique design makes it easy for developers to build sophisticated apps. Algorand is fast, it's secure, it scales, it has instant finality, and it's designed with all of the purpose-built building blocks that you need to build your next DeFi app. I'll tell you a little bit more about that during the interview. But for now, here's our conversation with Ishmael Kofi and Mustafa Al-Bassam. Hi, so we're here today with Ishmael Kofi and Mustafa Al-Bassam, the co-founders of Lazy Ledger. So Lazy Ledger is this very innovative uh, new kind of blockchain, layer two type protocol that we're going to dive into today. So yeah, thanks so much for joining us today, guys. Thank you for having us. Thanks a lot for inviting us. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So am I. Well, let's start there. I mean, Mustafa, you have like a very interesting background. I was watching this talk of yours before at some hacker conference where you talked about all uh, the the work you did in Anonymous and this project thing called Lulz. Do you mind going into a little bit, like what's your history there and, you know, how did that lead you to crypto in the end? Sure. So that was um, actually a very long time ago when I was a teenager. I was involved in various hacker groups, um, including Anonymous, and I co-founded a hacker group called Dalsec, which compromised um, many corporations and governmental entities. Um, this was when I was about 15, 16 years old. And um, in terms of um, how it relates to crypto, I guess not much, um, but that was a very interesting time and I've, I've moved on to other things. I mean, I guess there's at least like some kind of similarity in, you know, they're both potentially these, you know, disruptive activities going against the status quo. Do you see some similarity there between the two fields or? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, for sure, I guess that's um, in that sense is quite similar to crypto in the sense that there's, you know, similar political ideals and sort of philosophies you know the hack, the hacker movement um and the and sort of the crypto cypherpunk movement are all interlinked with each other and i guess the i guess the ideals and that um, kind of drove my hacktivism as a teenager kind of also drives the same ideals that makes me very interested in cryptography which is to you know give people more freedom and uh, back then it was motivated by freedom of speech and i guess um financial transactions are a form of speech and cryptocurrency allows people to transact uh, money freely. And so what were, how did you like uh, first get involved with the crypto space? Like what was your first foray into the field? So uh, I first kind of heard about Bitcoin in um, 2010, 2009. Uh, but even before I heard about Bitcoin, I was always very interested in peer-to-peer systems in general. Like I was very interested in BitTorrent, for example, and I was very closely following a website called the Pirate Bay, which was like the biggest, or still is the biggest torrent tracker, um, and where people kind of upload copyrighted movies and software. And uh, that, and the kind, of the, the kind of idea of creating decentralized protocols was very interesting to me. And um, so when Bitcoin, when I heard about Bitcoin, uh, that was naturally very interesting to me. I kind of, um, even though I heard about it in kind of 2010, I only really got involved in, in a full-time capacity in 2016 
when I started doing a PhD in London at the University College London, focusing on the topic of um, on-chain scalability. And I was specifically very interested in that topic because um, I was very closely following the Bitcoin community, you know, from 2010 onwards. And um, I was always thinking about the one megabyte block size limit um, in Bitcoin. And even before there was a massive debate on the Bitcoin community when the Bitcoin, the block size limits started getting reached and transaction fees skyrocketing, skyrocketing. There's a whole kind of huge debate about how we should scale Bitcoin, you know, and if, if on-chain scalability is even possible to do securely. Even before that, I was actually very worried about this block size limit. And, you know, prominent Bitcoin community members like Gregory um, Maxwell, you know, told me that this isn't, this isn't really a problem and we shouldn't worry about this. So I started doing research on on-chain scalability to figure out how we can actually scale blockchain securely in a decentralized way on layer one. And uh, as part of my PhD, I was a co-author on a paper called Chainspace, which was one of the first uh, proposals for a sharding, a sharded blockchain design. And that was later spun out into a company based in London. And that company was, um, well, actually the company was based in Gibraltar, but um, developers were based in London. And that company um, was later acquired by Facebook. And now many of the people involved are working on Facebook's Libra project. And Ishmael, how about you? Uh, I know you have a lot of background as well in like distributed systems and peer-to-peer stuff. How did you get involved with the space? So I think the time frame is actually uh, very similar to Mustafa's. So I was interested in, in distributed systems and decentralized systems for a while. And after my, after I finished my studies in, I don't remember actually exactly when it was, but around like 2015, I was like really interested and tried to get like more involved uh, into it. And I was working at a research institute at Fraunhofer and like I was proposing to like do something into that direction. And I was like, uh, believing that this is like, this will get bigger and uh, more relevant in the future, but there was no space, uh, for, for that in, in, in that, um, job. So basically I was looking around, um, for something where I can like dive in more deeply into research, but like also, um, work a bit on like actually implementing, uh, real world systems. And, I found this exactly at um, at EPFL at the DDS lab, like the distributed uh, um, and decentralized systems lab uh, of Brian Ford, um, where uh, one of the goals was also to like scale Bitcoin, <laughs> and um, so like Brian does basically everything, and it was a very like very chaotic and very interesting year where I learned a lot. Where I was at EPFL and we like. Um, I co-authored co a bunch of papers there as well. Um, one about like scaling Bitcoin as well. It's called Biz, Bizcoin. But also, um, we, we did a bunch of re research or like work in, in privacy preserving technology and all this. So this is where I think learned so much in like very little time because I had to, because like I had to implement a bunch of these systems. Um, in a team, though, like it was not, uh, uh, I was not like the 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 only person in the team. We're like a team of three engineers, which is quite unique, I think, uh, at university or in academia. Yeah. So after that, 
I briefly started a PhD as well and did a detour as in as in uh, as a PhD internship at Google where I worked on something like uh, Conix. Well, basically it is Conix. <laughs> so it's like uh, Google has this project called Key Transparency, which is very similar to Conix, but like they use uh, a log to put the signed. Basically, they don't just chain it, but like they put the tree roots, the, the sparse Merkle tree roots in a log. And, um, so basically after that, I decided, okay, um, there's so much happening and there's so much, uh, going on. It's probably not the best idea to stay in academia. And also at that time I, I met with Zaki in London and he was already, he was already kind of, uh, hinting that there might be hiring attendant. And, um, it took a few months later that I actually, almost a year later, actually, that I started attendant as well. And there, I got pretty much involved in the in the like knee deep in the implementation side of like uh, layer one blockchains. And so, how did you guys end up meeting and like starting to work on Lazy Ledger? So that is a very good question. I, I knew Mustafa already for quite a while from like Twitter and online, and I've, I've been going to these like hacker conferences, um, the Chaos Communication Congress, uh, where he's like also been always present and uh i think we met more and talked more um during my time at dpfl i guess and uh, we met at academic conferences and he approached me about lazy ledger at the the camp and yeah he had like this this research paper and i read it and i found like i didn't fully understand it in in the when like when i first read it and uh, i had a, a bunch of questions but like i immediately uh, seen the potential there and uh yeah then we started working we started working on that um shortly after basically so so basically i i asked ismail to join lazy ledger in the middle of a field about 50 <laughs> 50 miles north of berlin it's with true. a bunch of in the tents, of so, nowhere. yeah <laughs> <laughs> like a little hacker village <laughs> Back in January, we interviewed Steve Kokinos and Sylvia McCalley of Algorand. And during our conversation, we talked about how Algorand's unique design makes it easy for developers to build sophisticated applications on their platform. So what's great about Algorand, beyond the fact that it's fast, it's secure, it scales, and it has instant finality, is the fact that they've designed a layer one protocol with primitives that are purpose-built for DeFi. So what that means is that they've taken some of the most common things that people do with smart contracts and they've embedded them right in the system, right in the layer one. So things like issuing tokens, atomic transfers, well, these are built into the layer one. And smart contracts are first-class citizens on Algorand. So with these essential building blocks at your disposal, you can build fast and secure DeFi apps in no time. To learn more about what Algorand brings to the table and how to get started, I would encourage you to check out algorand.com epicenter. That lets them know that you heard about it from us and it takes you where you need to go to learn about their tech. And with that, we'd like to thank Algorand for supporting the podcast. So Lazy Ledger, it like a lot of it's derived from like the the sort of like data availability paper that uh, you co-authored from a couple of months ago. So was was that paper like sort of like did you have that in in mind that hey, I want to like create this like Lazy Ledger project, and that paper was like sort of sort of the white paper for it or did the paper come first and then after that you were like hey how do we build productionize this 
So you're referring to the paper that I wrote with Vitalik? Yeah. Uh, I guess to give some context first about that paper, um, so that, that was a paper about something um, called fraud and data availability proofs. And um, it was basically solving a fundamental problem in sharding. It was kind of like the missing piece of the puzzle, or like not maybe the missing, the biggest missing piece of the puzzle to kind of make sharding complete. Uh, which is, well, if you increase on-chain throughput, if you increase the number of transactions that people can post on the chain, and regardless of how you do that, whether it be through sharding or increasing the block size limit, you also need a way for people to verify the entire chain efficiently. And the question is, like, how can you do that uh, without requiring everyone to download every single transaction in every single shard uh, to make sure every single transaction is valid. And that's very important to scale because the whole point of blockchains is, is that they're decentralized. And the reason why they're decentralized is because anyone can publicly verify that the blockchain is correct and the transactions are valid. But you can't do that cheaply if there's a lot of transactions to verify. And that's why the Bitcoin community has been reluctant to increase the block size limit to more than one, one, about one megabyte, because it would, um, it wouldn't make it possible anymore for people to verify, um, uh, the blocks using Raspberry Pis, basically. And so this, so, um, there's this idea of fraud proofs. And the idea of fraud proofs is that instead of verifying, um, Instead of, that, instead of verifying every transaction yourself, what you can do is you can assume that the blocks are valid or specifically the blocks that have consensus are valid. And if they're not, then someone or any, any person or any node on the network can generate a very succinct and small proof called a fraud proof um, or more specifically a, what's called a state transition fraud proof to prove to you that block is invalid and you can reject that block. And so therefore you can kind of indirectly verify the whole chain with very little resources. But in order to, for you to be able to do that, you need another kind of prerequisite called data availability proofs because um, you can only generate a fraud proof for a block if the data of that block has been actually published by the miner or the, or the block producer. Because what the miner might do is simply publish um, the header of that block, or what's called the block header, but not actually publish the actual data in that block. And so what data availability proofs allow you to do is succinctly convince yourself or efficiently convince yourself that the block has actually been published without downloading the block yourself. Now, Lazy Ledger uses this data availability proof primitive to make it very efficient for people to to prove um, to themselves that the data has been published in blocks. However, the idea of Lazy Ledger itself actually came about um, long before this, this, this fraud proof paper. The idea of Lazy Ledger, I started thinking about it when I was starting my PhD. I was thinking about what are some alternative design paradigms that we could use to, to build layer ones? Or more specifically, what, what is the most minimal layer one you can build or like the most kind of modular basic layer one you can build to, to build a cryptocurrency on or to allow for cryptocurrencies to exist and how can we scale that? 
And so this data availability proves primitive um, made that much more practical and scalable. Cool. Thanks. That was, I think that was a great explanation already and sort of a great intro to lazy ledger before we go into kind of, you know, the details from lazy ledger, I'm curious, like, what do you guys want the impact of lazy ledger to be? So as I mentioned, right, lazy ledger is, um, basically you can think of lazy ledger as a very basic layer one, I would call it the minimum viable layer one. So if you strip back layer one to its core components and you made it as scalable as possible using existing technology, you would get lazy ledger. Uh, so effectively lazy ledger in simple terms is basically a, a blockchain where people can dump arbitrary data onto it and that data gets ordered and the consensus nodes don't care or process what that data is. And so, you, so it's basically a blockchain for dumping data on and, you, and the data gets ordered. And you can use this as a primitive to build um, all kinds of applications and blockchains. Now, what this is really useful for or what this has impact for, and I, I guess to explain the overall kind of vision is as follows. So when Bitcoin came about, um, the, the kind of vision for Bitcoin was, or I guess the technical architecture for Bitcoin was that it was using a blockchain for one purpose or for, or for one application. And that application is cryptocurrency or payments or store of value or depending on who you talk to. So it's basically a single purpose blockchain. Then um, kind of Ethereum came about and the idea of Ethereum was um, let's actually create a general purpose blockchain where you can, for every application that has a kind of general purpose virtual machine where people can upload smart contracts. And so those architectural visions were like very stark opposites to each other. And at the same time, there was Tendermint and Tendermint was more similar to Bitcoin's vision where the idea of Tendermint is that it allows you to create your own blockchain for your own application. So, and so at the moment, basically, if you wanted to create a application on a blockchain, there's only really two ways to do that. Um, the first way to do that is you use a shared exec execution environment or a shared computer like Ethereum. You, you, you code up your smart contract, you upload it to Ethereum and your smart contract runs on the same, I guess, machine or the same chain as everyone else's smart contract. And that's basically the world computer model um, that Ethereum kind of created. The, and the problem with that is that um, the Ethereum virtual machine is very limited uh, in terms of what you can deploy on it. And it has very high gas costs if you want to build applications that the Ethereum virtual machine does not natively support. such so, as, so for example, complicated cryptography or uh, cryptographic proofs that don't have native built-in functionality in the EVM. So if you want to do that, if you want to build more complicated applications that the EVM doesn't support, you have to basically build your own blockchain using something like Tendermint. But the problem with Tendermint is, or not the problem, but I guess the drawback of Tendermint is that, or any kind of solution like Tendermint, is that you, in order to create your own blockchain, there's a huge overhead for creating your own blockchain. 
there's a lot of work involved in creating your own blockchain because when you also when you create your own blockchain you also have to create your own layer one for that blockchain you have to create your own consensus layer and that consensus layer nowadays is usually based on proof of stake which is what Tendermint provides for you and to, to, do, to deploy a proof of stake network is takes a lot of work you have to for example create a token sale you have to um make make sure that's distributed in a decentralized way you have to make sure there's lots of validators and so on and so forth and so what laser where laser ledger comes in laser 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 ledger provides a modular pluggable layer one that does nothing but consensus and data availability layer one uh, the laser ledger layer one does not do smart contracts or execution layer one the laser ledger layer one basically does the does the core things that a layer one does and nothing else. And that makes it very useful as a pluggable layer one for people that want to create their own chains, but don't want to go through the overhead of having to create their own consensus network. Instead, they can simply plug Lazy Ledger in to their chain as a consensus layer by simply dumping the, their chain's blocks on Lazy Ledger. So could you maybe walk through a little bit of like the architecture, how, what that would look like. And, you know, one way of thinking about it is like, you're kind of building the minimum viable blockchain in the sense that it's basically just a time stamping system, right? Like you're getting consensus on ordering of transactions, but like nothing else about the transactions. And so this was actually like the idea of a lot of the early Bitcoin extensions, things like colored coins, for example. So could you maybe compare, talk a little bit about how these compare to those? Sure. So, uh, yeah, so before, before Ethereum existed, there were various projects to kind of extend Bitcoin to support many applications. And the kind of like overall basis of those, uh, of those proposals was were to basically um, embed data into Bitcoin transactions. Um, using an operation code called opreturn. So when you submit a Bitcoin transaction, you can attach a bit of data to it. And so that basically allows you to timestamp or get consent or order arbitrary data using the Bitcoin blockchain. And so that's why projects like um, Colored Coin and Mastercoin are effectively using Bitcoin as a data layer um, to dump data on. And and that allows them to basically um, create all of these other applications um, like smart contracts and other, not smart contracts, but more like specific other applications that are relevant to Bitcoin by kind of, I guess, um, some people would say abusing the Bitcoin blockchain by by dumping data that it was not designed to receive. And the difference with Lazy Ledger is that um, Lazy Ledger is designed for that specific purpose and it's it's designed to be more scalable for that, for that specific purpose in its architecture and also in its primitives, including um, data availability proofs, which allows nodes to verify the entire lazy ledger chain without having to download every block, which is what you would have to do in Bitcoin um, right now. If you were running a master coin node, you would need to download every single Bitcoin block basically to make sure that um, you, the validity of the master coin data is valid. I mean, isn't one of the nice features, in a way, you could think of it proof of work is like 
a consensus protocol that directly incentivizes data availability. Because if you're not making your data available, no one, no other miner is going to build on top of your blocks. Maybe that's like a reason why Bitcoin wouldn't need data availability proofs. Like if I had data and I wanted to make it available, I could put it on the Bitcoin blockchain and have with like very, very high level of like certainty that that data will be available just because of the nature of the Bitcoin network and like how widely distributed it is. And the fact that it's proof of war kind of incentivizes widespread distribution of the data. So why wouldn't I want to just do that? So basically, there's several things to this. Um, so with Bitcoin, that's okay because Bitcoin is like a single execution environment. But the problem is with if you wanted to create kind of like a general purpose data availability layer, you can't just rely on the consensus and the word of the consensus to tell you that the data is valid uh, for two reasons. So first of all, the threat model of Bitcoin and Ethereum are such that um, even if the consensus, even if there's a 51% attack on the consensus, that the consensus cannot steal money or cannot insert malicious state into the chain. The only thing they can do is censor transactions or reverse transactions. Now, with applications or with um, blockchains that simply, or, 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 or solutions like optimistic rollup sidechains that use um, a data availability layer like base ledger, if you configure the nodes in those systems to simply trust the consensus to tell you that the data is available, then if the consensus is dishonest, um, then they could potentially lie to you and inject invalid state to the system that you would never know about. And that significantly increases the incentive for doing a 51% attack because the financial reward for doing a 51% attack no longer becomes you just double spending a transaction, but the reward becomes potentially injecting malicious state that generates unlimited money or steal people's money. So that's the first reason. And the second reason is that with a general purpose data availability layer, there may be many different applications or chains that don't necessarily connect to each other or are independent of each other that are using the same data availability layer. And you don't want to end up in a situation where um, you effectively have to download every single, you have to download irrelevant data for other chains to verify the data for your chain. And so data availability proofs allow you to verify um, that the kind of the data for the entire system is available without downloading the data for other chains. So one of the, the advantages here would be it's very good at like, domain separating and like querying this. So like one of the problems, if I want, let's say uh, I wanted to store data on Bitcoin, like as an example, you know, I had this idea once of storing uh, all Tendermint, uh, like Cosmos Hub uh, validator set changes on the Bitcoin blockchain. So it it's there as like a long range attack prevention. But then the problem there is that finding one of these transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain is really hard. You kind of have to like scan through every transaction. And so one of the benefits of having a specialized, like something that's specialized for data availability is it will be very, it's much easier for me to like query for particular properties of transactions. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, cause with Lazy Ledger, we expect the chain to be used by many different applications or side chains or execution environments. 
um, that coexist with each other, that don't necessarily communicate with each other. And so we need an efficient way to allow nodes in each of these applications to query the data relevant to the specific application without having to care about the data for other applications. And the way that we achieve this is we basically um, use something called a namespaced Merkle tree, which is kind of like a kind of like a modified Merkle tree that basically allows you to query for specific messages in that tree for specific applications. And um, each application has what's called its own namespace identifier. So you basically query for the namespace identifier that you're interested in, and you can very kind of efficiently kind of verify that yes, the, the node that you're looking to has given you all the relevant transactions for that application that are in that block. So, I mean, you mentioned right, like in Ethereum, for example, right, like you you have this transaction ordering, but you also have to transaction execution, and so you guys are getting rid of that part. So I'm curious, like. What are the downsides of this? You know, what do you give up? Yeah, so it's a good question, right? So you can think of it basically as we're pushing the execution to layer two. And uh, in terms of what you give up, uh, it kind of depends on, as we mentioned, or, or to clarify, um, there is no kind of user execution environment on this ledger. Therefore, developers have to define their own execution um, environments using something like Cosmos or the Ethereum virtual machine or one of the many optimistic rollup sidechain implementations out there. Just on that, so developers have to define their own execution environment, like let's say using Cosmos as an example. Uh, can you explain what that would actually look like if somebody wanted to, to do something like that? Sure. So uh, effectively, um, uh, to be, I guess, as I mentioned, Lazy Ledger is basically a, a chain where people dump arbitrary data onto it or any data they want onto it. And that data gets included in the blocks and the blocks get ordered. And, and each application has its own namespace ID. So if you were to build a Cosmos SDK uh, based chain that wanted that, and let's say, okay, let's say for example, that you wanted to build a Cosmos SDK app, but you do not want to go through the overhead of having to actually create your own uh, proof of stake network using Tendermint. So what you would do is you would, you would create your own Cosmos SDK chain, and then you would post the blocks of those Cosmos, of the Cosmos SDK chain directly on Lazy Ledger, and that would basically give you consensus for that Cosmos SDK chain because the blocks immediately get ordered. And so it's, it's like the, your, the blocks are within the Lazy Ledger blocks. So it's kind of like a, a, a sub-blocks, if, if you like. Where do you keep agreement about like how to execute those blocks? And like, let's say, let's say there's like an, now we have an upgrade of this like Cosmos SDK chain and like, you know, in Cosmos, we know this process, okay, on chain governance and then hard fork and whatnot, like how, what would that look like here? So that's all defined on layer two, because the, on the lazy ledger layer one, the lazy ledger layer one has no concept of what transactions are valid or not. Instead, all of those concepts are defined by the users 
or by the, or by the Cosmos SDK app itself. So all the users that use the, your Cosmos SDK app would know which transactions are valid or not because they have the code for your Cosmos SDK app. And so the, your, the, the code for your Cosmos SDK app basically defines what the execution rules are and what transactions are valid or not. Maybe I can add to this, like you can still have like governance uh, proposals and, and all this like on, on the optimistic wall up, right? I mean, you, you could basically have something um, built completely with the Cosmos SDK, but you replace, for instance, like this is uh, how like from an implementation point of view, we are, we are looking at it right now is for um, you use the Cosmos SDK, you can use all the modules. But you replace on the optimistic rollup, you replace Tendermint, which like additionally provides consensus, which you don't need in the in the optimistic rollup. You would replace it with another what's called like ABCI client. So we we would um, implement our own node that like um, fulfills the the Tendermint side of the of the ABCI contract. This would be used instead, and then you could ideally could use all the SDK modules, for instance. Don't you still need consensus though for on the state route? Like let's say because you know the lazy ledger side is giving you consensus on transaction ordering. But then that would mean that anyone who wants to interact with this chain now has to like actually run all the software. But realistically oftentimes like clients just want to query something that's currently in state. And so for that you want some sort of consensus on state route. Yeah, that, that that's right. So so I guess I think this is a good point to kind of talk about a little bit about optimistic rollups uh, and um, assuming that your your listeners might not be familiar with them. This is basically our answer to kind of consensus on state routes, if you like. So going back to the kind of Cosmos SDK example, you might have you might create your own Cosmos app and you post the blocks um, for the Cosmos app onto Lazy Ledger, and these blocks have block headers and um, these block headers contain state routes, and these state routes can be used by light clients. So then the question kind of becomes, I mean, I guess that kind of answers your question partially, but then the other question kind of becomes, um, well, who gets to actually post these blocks? And like, what if people post invalid blocks? And um, the way that kind of uh, optimistic rollups work, optimistic rollups is basically this kind of sidechain technology where you can create sidechains that use a, another layer one as a data availability layer. And the whole kind of concept is that it's, it's on-chain data availability, but off-chain execution. So the execution for your sidechain happens off-chain, but the, the, the data availability for your sidechain happens on-chain on, on some other layer one, like Ethereum or Lazy Ledger. So in optimistic rollups, um, there's something, or there's a node called the the aggregator and the job of the aggregator is to, to collect transactions for that sidechain and to aggregate them into blocks and then submit that block to the data availability layer. Now, the, what happens if the aggregator submits an invalid block? And so first of all, I should add, by the way, um, in many of these optimistic world proposals, anyone can be an aggregator. And so the question is, what if the aggregator submits an invalid block? then what would um, happen is basically uh, a fraud proof can be generated. And um, because the data for that block is available to everyone, 
because it's been published on the data availability layer. And because that's the case, anyone that's watching the chain can generate a fraud proof to prove that they may, they have generated an invalid block with an invalid state root. So is Lazy Ledger going to provide this sort of fraud proof place to like do fraud proofs or would that happen on another chain like Ethereum? Uh, well, I mean, the fraud proofs themselves, they don't have to, to be posted on chain. Uh, I mean, the fraud proof system is a, is also a layer. I mean, like the challenge game, the, like where would the challenge game take place? Um, so, so that depends on the layer two, because all of this execution stuff is orthogonal to the, or, or irrelevant to this layer one. So on layer two, there's different ways of doing it. Um, I guess the simplest way of doing it is um, basically, it's the case that each kind of optimistic rollup chain has its own kind of sub-network where like the users of that of that chain communicate with each other. And if someone generates a fraud proof, then that fraud proof gets, gener- gets distributed and propagated across that sidechain's peer-to-peer network. And that allows all the users in that sidechain to uh, verify that the block is actually invalid. So also, and uh, reject that block. I know you guys have a third team member, uh, John Adler, and I believe he also has another project he works on called Fuel Labs, which is like an optimistic roll-up system on Ethereum. So what's sort of like the relationship between two these two projects? John is like the chief research officer at um, LazyLedger. Well, not liked, but he's the chief research officer. He uh, He's also working... He's actually the, the person who proposed the idea of optimistic roll-ups a year ago. And Fuel Labs is basically um, a optimistic roll-up a sidechain library for Ethereum, or specifically, it's, it's an EVM-based or EVM-compatible, actually, kind of um, optimistic roll-up implementation that allows you to do payments. And so um, the idea is that in the future, um, Fuel Labs will also support other data available layers other than Ethereum, um, such as Lazy Ledger. And the main advantage of that is that because Lazy Ledger is designed from the ground up to be um, a scalable data availability layer, um, you'll be able to process much more transactions on Lazy Ledger than Ethereum. Mm-hmm. So, like you know, I'm I'm not I'm more familiar with like the Optimism team's roll-up design, but there, you know, I send transactions to the operator, and then the operators uh, put them onto you know, for that, they just store it in the call data of an Ethereum block. So in your model where like a lazy ledger plus a rollup, are users submitting transactions to the operator who then puts a block and stores them on lazy ledger? Or are users submitting transactions directly to lazy ledger and then the operator picks them off from the lazy ledger chain? No, so so it's the it's the first one. So the um, the user submit the transactions directly to the aggregator, and then the aggregator aggregates them into a single block, and that's the block that gets posted onto um, Lazy Ledger. But I should say that the original model of Lazy Ledger was actually the second option, because um, the Lazy Ledger paper was released before the idea of optimistic rollups came about. And so the original model was that simply users would simply submit the transactions directly onto the onto the Lazy Ledger main chain. 
but that had some major drawbacks specifically because it meant that every users have to basically process every everyone else's or the users have to specifically process every other user's transaction and like clients won't be supported because there's no kind of fraud proofs involved and there's no aggregator to create a state route. I'm, I'm curious about transaction fees in this world. Would you have potentially like transaction fee on the lazy ledger level and then potentially also transaction fees on the level of the particular application running on it? And or like, how do you see that working? Yeah, so there will definitely be transaction fees on the lazy ledger main chain. And these will basically be very straightforward. It's basically storage fees because on the lazy ledger main chain, uh, nodes don't actually process or care about the contents of your messages and transactions. They simply just take them and put them on the chain. So there's no cost, to ex there's no execution costs or computation so no costs. Yeah, exactly. Right. More like in Bitcoin, right? Where it's basically dependent on the size. Exactly. So the transaction fees will be solely dependent on the size of the transactions. And that being said, um, you can you can implement uh, gas fees on the execution environments or the layer two uh, chains that people build on this ledger. So if and that's that would be specifically useful if you wanted to create a general smart contract platform using this ledger as a data availability layer, then you can implement gas feeds. However, um, the main kind of, the main vision for this ledger, I, I envision is that people will use it to build app specific chains, i.e. Uh, chains for their own, for one app. Each app has its own chain. And in that model, you don't really need um, gas fees because like, you can just directly hard code the um, kind of the, the, the fees for the actual transactions in your app because there's like limited amount of you know methods in in that app yeah I'm also curious so you have these different apps then to what extent would different apps that are running on top of lazy ledger be interoperable you know like via and yeah how would that work sure so um the interoperability aspect is also a layer two concern and is dependent on the execution environment that chains use. If the chains are using a, using a Cosmos SDK-based execution environment, then they could use IBC, or uh, which is short for the Inter-Blockchain Communication Protocol, which is the protocol that Cosmos uh, has developed to allow Cosmos chains to communicate with each other. So that's on the layer two, layer two side of things. On the layer one side of things, we want to make it possible for people on other, layer, on other layer ones, like Ethereum, to develop smart contracts that use Laser Ledger as a data availability layer. So, so for example, like you might develop an Ethereum smart contract that is very data heavy, and you might want to, you might find it cheaper to post that data on Laser Ledger, but you will need a way for that Ethereum smart contract to verify that that data has been posted on Laser Ledger. And so for that, we're developing um, a lazy ledger Ethereum bridge, where basically the lazy ledger block headers are posted onto the Ethereum chain that will allow you to verify that certain pieces of data have been included in lazy ledger via an Ethereum smart contract. So one of the main things about this 
Lazy Ledger project is like, it's not just, you know, you could have just, you know, a, a tenement chain chugging along and then it was storing transactions on there and you could do all this like, uh, layer two like stuff. But on top of that, you all guys also do these like sort of data availability guarantees for each, all the transactions. So before we even get into how those proofs work, I'm kind of actually struggling a little bit to seeing why they're necessary. Because if you have a Tenderman chain, isn't that already giving you some sort of data availability? Because let's say you have a hundred validators on your Tenderman chain. Tenderman consensus, as long as you have some honest validators, they're not supposed to sign pre-votes unless they have the full block proposal. So the, just the fact that you have, as long as you have one third validators being honest in the sense that they're not just signing stuff without getting the proposal, you're kind of guaranteed that all the honest validators, all the honest validators at least have access to the data. So why is that not sufficient? Sure. So this is going back to the um, threat models. So one threat model or one security model might be put for data availability might be, as you described, which is let's just assume that uh, two thirds of validators are honest and they will only sign valid blocks. Or even one third has to be honest. Sorry, one third, yeah, uh, has to be honest. And, and, and they, can only sign, uh, they will only sign valid blocks. When, when you say that, that sounds very reasonable. But when you actually compare this to the um, Bitcoin and Ethereum security model and you understand the implications of this, this is much, much less secure than those models. Because um, with Bitcoin and Ethereum at the moment, if there's a 51% attack and the consensus goes rogue and dishonest, the worst thing that could happen is that the rogue and malicious consensus can either censor transactions or undo transactions. What they can't do, they can't inject or insert invalid transactions to the chain. And they also can't hide transactions. So they can't make data unavailable um, because like, the kind of validity rule on Bitcoin and Ethereum is such that the full nodes also verify the data availability of the chain. If, if you start assuming that one third of validators are honest for other things, not just for double spending, if you start assuming they're, they're honest for things like data availability and validity of state, that completely changes the threat model and that completely changes incentives for doing such an attack. Because at the moment, there isn't really a big incentive for doing a 51% attack because from, a, from an economic perspective, at least, because the worst thing you can do is um, undo transactions and do double spending attacks. So like maybe you can like buy, maybe, maybe the best case scenario, you can buy a Tesla or something with Bitcoin or some expensive car like let's say it's worth 100k or something, some some supercar, and then like do a 51% attack, and then undo that undo that transaction, and you've got a free sports car. But um, that, that's with the Bitcoin model. But if you start assuming um, the consensus is honest for other things like state validity, then the consensus can steal everyone's money. So like that's a lot more profitable than getting a free sports car. 
Yeah, so you need one third honest, but you can turn that into like one third rational by adding in like challenge game. So let's say, okay, here's an example. Let's say I, I, I create tournament and then I say, okay, in the next, every validator gets a random challenge saying like, hey, give me the nth leaf in the Merkle tree. And every validator has to, with their next vote, like uh, in like consensus, they have to include their piece in that. And so now it's, and if they don't, then they're like slashable. Right. Or their votes just don't get counted. And so now you suddenly turn that honesty assumption into like a rationality assumption where, okay, every validator now does have an incentive to not, they will say, I need the data before I sign a pre vote because if I don't get the data, I'm not going to be able to answer the challenge next time. And so now you're not even depending on honesty anymore. Right. But what you're, so what you're proposing is basically, um, I guess, a naive um, protocol to prove data availability, which is basically you know what what we're what we're doing, right? Yeah. So at that point, I think we kind of agree that you do need data availability. You, you do need to kind of verify or, or like. I guess like you, you need to, okay, I guess, okay, I guess what you're saying is slightly different in the sense that the node, the end clients themselves aren't verifying data availability, but you're kind of incentivizing um, miners to be honest. So what you're proposing, so what you're proposing is basically um, something similar to what's called a proof of custody scheme. Well, what that basically, that proves that, um, so, I mean, there's two problems what you proposed. So the first problem that, that allows the miners to prove that they have the data, but it does not prove that they've actually published the data. Like that's the first problem, um, because they're only, they're only publishing a very small part of data. And then um, the second problem is, I guess, kind of related to the first problem, which is that that only proves that they have a very small part of the data. Well, in reality, you need one hundred percent of the data to be available, because you can hide an invalid transaction in a very small part of the block. Like a hundred bytes, but it's but it's random, right? So that's so the the part that they're challenged with is going to be random. So they need to have the whole block in order to have guarantees that they could provide a random data. And the 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 point here is it's turning it so you only need one honest validator to make sure the data is available, right? So you're no longer depending on like all validators being honest or the proposer being honest or one third being honest. As long as you have one honest validator, the data will be available how how like which parts of the block or like how much of the block will they have to publish in the challenge like let's say like one percent for example right and so that's not that's not good enough because um that means there's effectively a 99 percent chance of them winning um the challenge without actually having that data so that's the yeah so what that's what that's why we use erasure coding uh in data availability proofs because like because our data availability proof um, scheme is basically a glorified version of what you proposed using like some fancy stuff like erasure coding to make the probability of this sample of this challenges a very high probability um, guarantee that the data is actually published. And I'm happy to kind of go into detail a little bit to explain how the scheme works. Yeah, that'd be great. Sure. Yeah, I mean that's a good kind of place to start. So the way it works is basically. 
So first of all, I should explain what erasure coding is, right? Erasure coding is this kind of like mathematical primitive, a very old mathematical primitive that was, I think, first discovered in about the 50s. And it's a piece of technology used in all kinds of like technology, like CD, CD-ROMs and satellites and stuff like that. And what basically allows you to do is um, if you have a piece of data, let's say one megabyte big, and let's say you lose some of that data, or let's say you lose half of that data. So let's say with your one, with your one megabyte file, one megabyte file, you lose 500 kilobytes of the data, and you can still recover the entire one megabyte file uh, with only half half of the data. Because what you basically do is, let's say you have a 500 kilobyte file, what you do is you you apply this erasure coding scheme onto it. And what that does is it, it blows up that file to one megabyte big and the kind of extra 500 kilobytes of that file is not your original data, but what's called the erasure code, which is kind of like, and, and which is kind of like this kind of like, um, I won't go to the mathematics of it, but it's basically, it creates extra redundancy for your file such that it makes it such that if you lose half of the data, you can recover the whole data, thanks to this extra part of the file that you included called the erasure code. So, so what we do basically is when we create a new block, usually in Bitcoin and Ethereum, when a miner creates a block, they commit to a Merkle root of all the data in that block. And so what we say is, is that Instead of committing to the Merkle roots of the data of that block, you commit to the erasure coded version of the data of that block. So if the block was originally one megabyte big and there's one megabyte of transactions, you apply the coding scheme onto it and the block, um, the transaction size becomes two, two megabytes big. And the, the latter one megabyte becomes the code itself. And then you commit to the Merkle root of that data, which is block header. And so what that creates is basically this property where let's suppose a miner is malicious and wants to hide even one single byte in that block. Let's say they want to withhold one byte in that block. In order to hold one byte of that block, they have to withhold half the block because they can't just hold one byte of that block because um, you, can recover, you can recover that byte from the erasure code. The only way you can hide that byte is if you can, if you, if you hide or if you withhold half of that block. And so, um, that basically makes it possible to create this kind of, um, challenge scheme based on random sampling. Because let's say that you're a client or you're a node that wants to check that all of the data in the block has been published but you're too lazy or you don't have the resources to download the entire block. So what you do is you, you ask any node of the network to give you 10, for example, 10 random pieces of the block. And for each, for, for each sample that you ask in that block, there's a 50% chance that you will hit the portion of the block that has been withheld, right? And then if you do two samples, there's a 75% chance. If you do three samples, there's an 87.5% chance and so on and so forth until you get to a situation where if you do 16 samples, 
there's a 99% chance that you've sampled a part of the block, the, the, the half of the block that the miner has withheld, and therefore you will not get a response to your sample request, and therefore you can assume that the block is not available. Doesn't that assume that the miner like pre-decided what to withhold? Like, let's say the original data is 100 bytes, the new encoded data is 200 bytes. No matter what I request for the first 99, the miner will be like, oh, yeah, here's the, here's the thing. It's only when I hit the 100th request, then the miner will say, I'm going to stop now. I'm not going to reply. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So in order for this scheme to work, there has to be a minimum number of nodes that are actually sampling enough samples from each block such that the miner is forced to release more than half of the block. And under a naive kind of or basic network model, then um, the miner could uh, success- successfully pass all of the sampling challenges for the for those first few light clients. And um, whether that's acceptable or not depends on how big your network is. So with Bitcoin, for example, there's 1 million light clients, uh, according to Google Play's Bitcoin wallet downloaded statistic. And um, with reasonable net parameters, you can only fool a couple of hundred light clients. So that's a very few like that's a very few number of light clients, such that the attack is not really worth the cost. However, if that's not acceptable to you, or if you have a much smaller network, then you can um, use a more advanced network model, such that you make each sampling request through a mixed network, or you use um, a kind of uh, onion network like Tor. And you kind of add a mixed network on top of that. And it basically makes it such that each sampling request is um, sent at a kind of like a, a uniformly random time. And, th- and that makes it impossible for the binary to link each sample request to each specific light client. And that basically thwarts that attack. But so is the idea here that light clients would inform each other? Or like, w- let's say... Let's say there's a hundred like clients, right? Talking to a validator. And for 90% of them, the validator can't, it ends up not responding like properly. But for 10% of them, it like, you know, they got, it got lucky and they only requested stuff that wasn't withheld. So how are like clients supposed to like inform each other saying like, Hey, you know, maybe in your challenge game with the minor, it looked available, but to me, it didn't work out. How do they inform each other of this? Uh, well, I mean, there's no need to inform each other. Um, the data availability kind of challenge does not require any cooperation. Um, well, I mean, not. I mean, the data availability proves themselves. They don't it doesn't require any cooperation between light clients. Um, you only need to verify it for yourself to be convinced. But yeah. Let's say, like, you know, back to the attack I was describing earlier, where, like, it gives 40, the miner gives 49% of the data to anyone. And it could be a different 49%, but the, all the light clients need a way of, like, coordinating. Let's say the, yeah, let's say the miner only gives 49% to anyone. The, all, all the light clients now need a way of, like, combining their own 49% to like recreate the original yeah, that's right. data, right? Yeah, so they need to cooperate to um, share the data with each other, but they don't, they, they don't need to cooperate for the actual part of 
convincing themselves whether data is available or not. So they had, so they do have to cooperate to re to work together to reconstruct data. And you can basically use BitTorrent for this, for example. You can basically represent the block as a BitTorrent file and different peers in that BitTorrent uh, file can have different pop chunks and they can share it, share it with each other. Yeah, any any peer-to-peer -peer network uh, works. Like you could also use IPFS or whatever. Yeah. So one of the challenges here is how do you turn this into a non-interactive proof, right? Like, so I, I see this is sort of a very interactive game. I can convince myself, but that like data is available, but like on roll-up, let's say I have a roll-up on Ethereum. I need to tell the, before the smart contract on Ethereum should accept the state route, it should have some non-interactive proof that the data is available. So how do I construct that? Yeah, so um, I've been, I and others have been thinking about um, non-interactive proofs a lot. Um, so, I mean, there's different definitions of, of non-interactive proof. If you're talking about like, can I generate some string of data and I, I, and I can give you that string of data to and, and that, that string of data can convince you that some other piece of data is available on the, on the internet. As far as I know, that's not possible. Um, I've tried to construct schemes to do this, but um, it requires a lot of assumptions and basically it's not really practical. However, if you're talking, if you're talking about more generally the goal of like verifying data availability proofs on Ethereum, um, there's, there's, there's two ways of looking at this. Uh, well, with our current uh, plan to create a laser ledger to Ethereum bridge, the Ethereum part of the bridge does not verify data availability proofs for laser ledger. And therefore, on the Ethereum side of the, Ethereum side of the bridge does make a um, honest majority assumption for the consensus. And it assumes the consensus is honest and is only signing blocks that are actually available, uh, which is problematic for the reasons that I propose, but it's okay for certain applications that I can describe later. The second way of looking at it is there have been proposals in Ethereum research to kind of allow Ethereum to, um, and Vitalik has also made this proposal to allow Ethereum to validate um, user-specified data availability routes and that would basically make it possible for Ethereum to verify data availability proofs for third-party chains. So that you can basically submit like um, the Merkle root of some data to Ethereum. And this could be like a special opcode that is added in the future hard fork. And the Ethereum chain would basically verify the data availability of, of this other specified Merkle root uh, using data availability proofs by making the sampling requests. And the node, the, the, the nodes that are verifying the chain itself have to do this. Okay, cool. Ishmael, I'm curious, you mind diving into it a little bit? I mean, you guys are built, uh, like, what's kind of the connection between, like, Lazy Ledger and, like, Cosmos SDK? Is this currently being developed, like, as, yeah, can you expand a bit on that? Sure. So the current plan is to use, so for the Lazy Ledger layer one, we will use Tenement for consensus. And... Mustafa originally proposed to not have any state uh, execution on, on the layer one. So it's like the, the purest form of lazy ledger. Um, but then we'd have to define, um, we would have to define the 
POS layer, like a proof of stake layer, as well as a rollup. So, and then we, as we have to do this execution anyway. So, I think for a first uh, implementation, we will go with um, using the Cosmos SDK as much as possible and do that part of the execution, like the minimal amount of execution to have like a proof of uh, stake network on the, uh, layer one. So, on lazy ledger, basically. And then, so in that sense, we will use the, the, the Cosmos SDK as much as possible. And then for the optimistic rollups, one way to, to build these is to use um, the SDK as well. Ideally, we would like uh, you know, abstract away is the wrong word because like it's already abstracted away through ABCI. We would like, yeah, we would remove Tenement from the uh, Cosmos SDK in the sense that like the dependence on that. And write our own ABCI client, for instance. And then people could use the SDK to write their optimistic rollups. Yeah, cool. Very interesting. Well, I mean, let's dive into a little bit, like, if Lazy Ledger launches as this layer one, like, how do you think that will kind of compete with other layer ones, you know, whether that's an Ethereum or I know, Solana or various others that are coming along? Yeah, how will it differentiate and for what kind of use cases do you think it will be better or worse versus those? One that I'd actually be especially interested in is Filecoin. How does like sort of how do you see this in comparison to Filecoin as well? As far as I understand, for instance, Filecoin doesn't do ordering, right? Like it's it's more of a like dumping data only, right? And I, th- I think um, in Lazy Ledger, like if you, if your application needs to dump data, but like it needs the ordering of that data. Then you would you 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 would prefer lazy ledger. But if the rollup operator is the one picking the order and then submitting it to the lazy ledger chain, then well, it depends what you what you say the data is. And in, in when I like when I said like the data, um, I was speaking more more generally. In, in that case, the data would be the the rollup, the block itself. So and there, obviously, you'd have an ordering to have a chain. Um, but like for other applications, um, it could be like Ethereum applications. You you need um, to, to dump data to be available, but also like ordered. That then you couldn't just use uh, Filecoin, as far as I understand. Back to Brian's question, right? You asked like what kind of applications would would like preferably build on on, on Lazy Ledger. I think. If you want to build like a application specific blockchain or like a, you have a, a, a cool idea for your fancy um, blockchain and, and decentralized app. So you could do this um, with, with lazy ledger in a very simple way because like you, you, you don't need to assemble that, that validator set, like the, the proof of stake network, as Mustafa mentioned earlier. So like you'd have the easiness of like Ethereum of like deploying a smart contract. And and you could launch your your could launch your app without um, any any further hassle. Basically, like in an ideal world, you could like just deploy it in in like in a few minutes. Basically, that would be ideal. Cool. And when this lazy ledger chain launches, I mean, if it's it's a proof of stake chain, right? So I guess it will have some sort of staking token. Do you see any other role for that token besides just, you know, validators putting up a bond? Right. It will also be used to um, pay the fees to submit the data. Right. Probably, I mean, Mustafa can say more to that, but like probably the 
Optimistic wallup chains could also use the lazy ledger native token. They don't need to to define their own token if they don't want to. Right? Like if if you need a token on your chain, you could just also use that. Right. Yeah. So it can be used as a um, as a payment token as well. More generally, if 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 the ch- if chains building on lazy ledger want to use it as that. But um, I mean, the beauty of it though is that you don't have to and. Um, you can actually build uh, chains on top of Lazy Ledger where users have no interaction whatsoever with Lazy Ledger token. And so um, you don't really have to kind of force users to use some other token. But the block aggregators or the block proposers still pay for the storage fees in Lazy Ledger in Lazy Ledger tokens, but the users does not have to be do not have to be exposed to that at all. Because they can simply um, do like a currency conversion where the users pay for pay the aggregators in some different currency, and the aggregator does a currency exchange to Lazy Ledger and pays for the Lazy Ledger storage fees in Lazy Ledger token. Exactly. So it's optional. Yeah. But I mean, to uh, to go back to your kind of um, question about how does Lazy Ledger differentiate from other layer ones? So I mean, pretty much every other layer layer one has a very similar value proposition and lazy ledger has a very very different value proposition the value proposition of most layer ones like let's say ethereum 2.0 or avalanche or algorand and so on and so forth near protocol definity so on and so forth their value proposition is effectively to create like the coolest new like layer one with a superior execution environment that's more scalable than everyone else's and they're all doing that under the world computer model. So they're all like basically creating competing computers and they're trying to attract developers to them to use this, to, to build applications on top of them using their execution environments, using whatever programming languages they provide, you know? Whereas Lazy Ledger's early proposition is actually we're just providing a, a very minimal uh, modular pluggable layer one and the developers actually should just create their own app-specific chains using whatever kind of execution environment they want. And I think this is a very, very useful um, piece of infrastructure that does not exist yet because it makes it, makes it it basically, the, the, the end goal is it, for the first time in history, it makes it possible for people to deploy their own blockchains in a decentralized way very, very quickly and in minutes, possibly, without having to go to the overhead of deploying a new consensus network. And I think this is comparable in terms of impact. I think this is comparable to um, what the cloud or what virtual machines did for the internet. Because cloud uh, virtual machines and services like Amazon EC2 made it possible for the first time for uh, developers to deploy their own virtual servers with their own execution environments on the internet Whereas previously, if they wanted to do that, they have to have to have a physical server and put that in a data center or in their own home, for example, or they would have to use someone else's server uh, with a with a limited execution environment. Like back in the day, it was GeoCities, for example, and more modern ones would include Bluehost. But virtual machines allow people to actually cr- create their own servers with their own execution environments, and I think that's really what drove like the kind of later stages of web 2.0 development as it allowed people to you know use things like docker containers and all kinds of new 
environments and languages like Rust and Ruby and Python and stuff like that that just weren't available on the shared web hosts like Bluehost or Dreamhost or GeoCities. Cool, amazing. Like, what's the what's the timeline for you guys to launch Lazy Ledger? When is it? When can people use it and build on it? Yeah, so it's still very early stages, and um, we're just at the moment we're just um, completing the legal aspects of our seed round. So, we, and that will allow us to hire to hire developers. But uh, we expect to have a test net release within about nine to twelve months, and then the main net release within twelve months after that. But before then, we'll have a DevNet release sooner for people to play with and, and experiment with. We have a lot of activity on GitHub at the moment. So if you go to github.com slash lazyledger, we're actively developing the project there. And we also welcome community kind of contributions and input for anyone that's interested in following the project. Cool. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today, guys. I think that was uh, very interesting to dive into this and definitely seems like a you know, really radically new approach to doing this. So I'm excited to see what the impact will be. Thanks for having us. It was great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode. We release new episodes every week. You can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a Google Home or Alexa device, you can tell it to listen to the latest episode of the Epicenter podcast. Go to epicenter.tv slash subscribe for a full list of places where you can watch and listen. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for the newsletter so you get new episodes in your inbox as they're released. If you want to interact with us, guests, or other podcast listeners, you can follow us on Twitter. And please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps people find the show, and we're always happy to read them. So thanks so much, and we look forward to being back next week.